out on the road Waiting for a new episode We've been thinking of you Just what you need Oh yeah, yeah Now that the show's underway I guess we can't call it a day You're ready for The Bowfinger Show Welcome back to another episode of the Bowfinger Minute Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minute hosts examine the 1999 Frank Oz-directed comedy Bowfinger. One minute of screen time per episode. I am your host for this week, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please, please, I'm begging you to call me Sully. On today's episode, which is the last one I'm doing for this week, and I'm very honored to have been part of it this week, we are breaking down Minute 45, which begins with Carol driving down the street, listening to Ethel Merman and getting into her head as a serious dramatic actress and ends with Carol confronting Kit in the boutique suit store where she thinks she's talking about acting in a movie and he thinks he's going crazy. Well, I am absolutely crazy for our guest for today. He has been a regular on my podcast with the Sully Baseball Podcast and the new Lockdown MLB Podcast. He is an author of many books and a big baseball fan, a big movie fan. It's Jeff Pullman. How are you doing, buddy? Welcome to the podcast. I'm doing great, Sully. Thanks for having me on. Especially to talk about one of my favorite comedies. Well, yeah, you and I, uh, you, you and I have checked a lot of boxes uh, on common interests over the years. Uh, um, we had a little mutual admiration society, which led to you being on uh, the my first podcast and now locked on MLB. Um, and 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 love our love of history, our love of baseball, and our love of movies. Um, tell me a little bit about your background. With well, first of all, tell some of the people who don't know you about some of the things that you've written, and because uh, I I keep forgetting that um, not everyone knows your resume as well as I do, and tell people a little bit of you know some of the stuff you've written, and probably that would explain why you and I have gotten to know each other. Sure. <clears throat> well, I've actually uh, uh, published about four or five uh, quirky baseball historical fictions uh, mm-hmm. novels. Um, I guess my favorite of the bunch being Mystery Ball 58, which is which set is in, mine San, too. Yep. Yeah, set in <laughs> yep, San Francisco, the first year the Dodgers and Giants played on the West Coast. And the narrator is uh, a guy, an usher at Seal Stadium named Snappy Drake, who finds a dead body on opening day in the, his grandstand section. And so the whole book is kind of him trying to figure out who, who killed this, this person and why he's being. Uh, fingered for it and um it's just a fun kind of a baseball film noir uh story um 
And then my most recent uh, book is Red Jacarandas. It's three weird tales of Los Angeles, uh, which actually fits right in with our Bowfinger <laughs> story. Right. But but uh, just L.A. is just a very interesting place because there's kind of a hidden history here uh, that is not on the surface. You have to kind of I've been living here since 1982. And you, you, after a while, you just start to see all these places and things you didn't know existed and that LA is so vast that it, it, it hides a lot of its history and yeah. so I think my three creepy stories were a way to kind of um, play with that a little bit yeah I that, that's something that you really find out when you move here that there is there are little um, there are little pockets of of you know there's a little pockets of history little pockets of happiness but there's a little there are pockets of sort of strange this uh, los angeles attracts a lot of strangeness to it and even if it's something as dastardly as like the cecil hotel which is sort of like this epicenter of murders that that you could just i've just driven past it you know there it is there it is and also you know the black dolly and all that other things that happened but also just weirdness and strange people and it's one of the things i like about bowfinger um and there's a couple of nods in the film to another great 90s movie about filmmaking, which is Ed Wood, which is that it's not necessarily always about the best and most talented people, but it's about the kind of person who can have an orbit of people who could be, who will kind of run along with their weird dreams. I mean, I mean, Los Angeles is filled. I mean, even the, um, the show uh, Barry with... Uh, um, Henry Winkler and uh, um, Hater, Bill Hader, um, yeah. or the the show where Michael Douglas played. And what was the show that Michael Douglas played? The acting teacher of the was it the Kalinsky Method? Yeah, um, those yeah. are about these little pockets of people who have their who aren't hugely successful and yet have people who are willing to fall on a sword for them. And you know, Bowfinger is exactly that. And in this in this movie, I found there was something somewhat meta in the making of this movie, and that is that the producer Brian Grazer was the one that suggested that Eddie Murphy play this part, but they only had a tiny window of opportunity to work with him because he was in between two movies. So as they're making a movie about how they can't, they're squeezing in time and trying to squeeze him into this movie, in real life, they only had a small window of opportunity to use Eddie Murphy in this movie. So there is a, uh, uh, you know, it was a little bit of the fiction, you know, the art imitating fiction or, or yeah. reality or something. It did something that it is more yeah. profound than I can but, express. Uh, I just read on their IMDb trivia page for this movie that they were thinking of Keanu Reeves for that yes. part, which is yeah. um, remarkable. I think it's. I think this is one of Eddie Murphy's best best roles. Mm -hmm. I mean, also playing two, you know, two parts. But uh, it, it's it's just uh, it's. I think it's the best. It's the best movie I've seen about satire of Hollywood that I said the, right. the player is really great that's a little more serious but that's also that's also really good but this was just hilarious I felt from start to finish well I actually think that's an it's interesting you brought up the player because the player came out in the early 90s this came out in 99 and they almost bookend each other in a way because the player is about the the sort of 
the elements of Hollywood that you think of, big studio movies, big movie stars, huge budgets, and that sort of thing. And this reflected the people who were on the outside doing anything they can to break into that world. They would be the people who looked right. at the Tim Robbins character or the Brian James character, all the people from that wonderful movie, and wished they were them. These were the these were the with the Griffin Mill wannabes in this in this particular movie. And yeah. I, I've yeah. look at I made this point before the nineties were a time where so many people, including myself, who had images of being a independent filmmaker were just sort of energized by, you know, Sundance and Miramax and mm-hmm. this tidal wave of indie films that hit the mainstream that they, they thought, well, I'm just one brothers McMullen away from my yeah. big movie. And, uh, and there's, I met, I met so many Bowfingers in a way I may have been a Bowfinger myself for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, I came out in 82 specifically to write movie scripts and wrote mm-hmm. about 20 of them. And two of them did get sold and produced. One of them was a Miramax movie with Donald Sutherland called Benefit of the Doubt. Benefit of the Doubt okay. with uh, a- Amy Irving playing his daughter. A little th- mystery thriller thing. And um, so I, I had that experience a little bit, but it's, it's uh, I don't know. I, I, th- I think the interesting thing about the Steve Martin character, Bobby Bowfinger in this, is that he's kind of really bad at what he does <laughs> as far as his taste, but he does, he's not aware of it. He isn't even, he, he just goes beyond that. It's a little bit like Ed Wood, like Ed Wood's character. Mm-hmm. But um, the, his, his cabal of people around him are, are just like a perfect match. Christine Baranski, just, just you know, the... The kind of washed-up diva uh, who's who's taking it. He looks like Gloria Swanson in some of these scenes. The way she looks at the you know the outtakes and uh, right. the rushes. But um, as much as I think it's a great movie, I think it's it, it's sad to me that it wasn't a bigger hit. And if you ask me why, I would say completely, it's the movie's title. I have no idea what that what Bowfinger means when I saw that. Move that name on the poster. I said, "What is this?" Yeah, um, I, I felt it should have been called "Low Budget" or uh, so. It could have been called "Chubby Rain," which was the name of the movie that they were. Playing. Right, right. I mean, just something. Bowfinger. What is that? It sounds like an Austin Powers sequel or something. Yeah, I, it's funny you mention that because I remember when the the poster first came out, and it was. Um, it was Steve Martin with his arm around Eddie Murphy, but not as Kit Ramsey, but as, um, yeah, as, as his brother. brother. Yeah. Um, I remember thinking, which one's Bowfinger? Like, <laughs> there you go. You know, or is that an expression? You know, and yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that, that title is I, a very weird, is a, a very, very weird, strange choice. And I'm not sure how they yeah. came up with that, but that was, I don't know. I, I, don't I don't know, know either. It's odd. But, it's odd to me because otherwise, it, I thought it completely worked. That scene where they're going across, they're having <laughs> the shy with the braces, Eddie Murphy run across the, the I guess it's the one on one freeway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> to film that scene is is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Still, you know. Well, you mentioned Christine Baranci, who I think this is one of my fi- I love that she just just totally leans into the pretentiousness of this type of actress. You see her at the beginning of this minute driving in her convertible, 
as if she's a great diva and she's driving through one of the like i'm guessing it's beverly hills i've only lived in los angeles for over a decade and a half yeah, i still don't I know where beverly all the places hills. are yeah so so and so in a way she's trying to drive through there as if this is her where you know this is her home turf and listening to the Ethel Merman song, which, by the way, I'm sorry, I don't know the name of the song, but it's certainly Ethel Merman was that kind of that brash diva, the kind that was on the stage doing, you know, Gypsy or, or whatever, that you know that that's who she, you know, that's the role she belongs in. Not just the lead, but the lead that can completely, you know, steamroll the the rest of the of the show and here she she's in Ethel Merman without her gypsy basically <laughs> and and then you know she sees um Kit Ramsey in the uh um you know go, going into the uh uh you know going into the uh, uh men's shop there the men's shop and that's when she's like okay I belong here this is I belong with you know this is you know, she wants to, she feels that this is her, her giant break, obviously. And she wants to be on the same level, if not as, uh, uh, in terms of fame and fortune, but in terms of the craftsmanship and artistry and just the pretension just sort of just overflows like, you know, you know, like, like Jiffy pop popcorn in this scene. Yeah, and then there's also don't forget the classic scene with her where they have the dog, uh, Bobby Bonefinger's dog, with the high right. heels on, going yeah. through the parking lot, parking garage, yeah. trying to mimic her steps. It's just, it's just an amazing. Um, and we continue the pretentiousness in the boutique suit shop, where. Kit, the Eddie Murphy, the the superstar version of Eddie Murphy, which who knows how close this was to actual Eddie Murphy at this point in his career, or at least maybe certainly at the party all the time part of his career. Um, he has to have a model show him what it looks like. And of course, the great detail that he can't completely picture it until he puts the little the little fan mask in front of his face. And that's when it finally clicks, as if he couldn't imagine himself, you know, in what it looks like. He has to see his own face, how handsome he would look on that. And, um, yeah, that to, that's just – these are this is like almost two pretentious trains coming at each other. And you know that if Carol, Christine Bransky's character, ever reached any level of fame, she not only would be this bad, she would probably be worse. Because she almost right. wants to be treated like this, but at this point, he is being treated like this. And oh, like I've seen when celebrities get this sort of treatment in my experience in the entertainment industry, and you just want to look at him, go like, you, you can't possibly think this is healthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's, and, and then, uh, and then of course, there's the Heather Graham part. Mm -hmm, exactly. which, was, which I heard that Steve Martin might have based on his relationship with Anne Hache, who unfortunately <laughs> passed Anne Hache, who yeah. uh, who ended up uh, partnering with a woman. And this at the end of this movie, uh, the Heather Graham character ends up with like the studio head after going through everybody, everybody on the crew, basically. Well, um, yeah. 
And we talked about that there are two types of pretentious actresses. The one is the Christine Baranski Carol, and the other is the Heather Graham Daisy. And one thinks that they're already a huge star and just everyone has to catch up to them. And the other is just going to use what they have, you know, as currency. And, um, you know, whether, and, and I am guessing both Steve Martin and Frank Oz knew their share of daisies, like Heather Graham's character along the way. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we can't not forget that Robert Downey Jr. in, in like one or two scenes as a studio executive, just phenomenal. The guy right. just, <laughs> he can do so much with so little, that guy. Well, and, and that's, and you know, you, we mentioned the player before. Essentially, Robert yeah. Downey Jr. was playing Tim Robbins' character right. in the right. player. And that it may have actually been a really cool cameo if they'd gotten Tim Robbins to play Griffin Mill or some part <laughs> along those way. But yeah, that's exactly, people count, would kowtow to those types of studio executives for the off, for the, the completely non existent chance that they would read their script. I have a friend of mine named Greg who is a um, has been a screenwriter and writer and editor in television years and years. And he was telling me the story about what someone in development told him. And that was he told him a story of how he got a script in the hands of one of the of the studio execs. And he said, I really would like you to read the script. And, da, da, da. and the exec took the time to him and said, I will. I'll get to it. But I got to show you something. And he took the guy to his office and he opened up his closet and there was a stack of scripts that was about four feet high. And he just sort of dropped it in and he's like, I got to read all these first. (laughs) Which is one reason why I I actually think in this day and age, you're almost better off instead of writing a screenplay, just write it out in prose form and try to sell it as a book or try to do, or make it a, a, just do something so it exists somewhere because right. i think about like you mentioned you got a script made with with you know donald sutherland and and um you know graham green and a couple of very good actors in the film um but i'm sure there's things that you wrote that i thought that, were better than that yeah that yeah, we'll never see the light yeah. of day yeah you know that's why you're smart you write them out as a book because hey at least mr ball exists right. at least it's real it's not a PDF. Right. It's not a Well, it's also a PDF, but yeah, that's true. Yeah, but it's real. It's in my. It's a tangible thing in my hands. Yeah. yeah. Um. But, well, thinking about speaking of tangible things, what the scene in the boutique I think is a very important scene because it sort of shows like why does a Kit Ramsey character, Eddie Murphy's superstar character, get to act like that? You're witnessing the enabling. You're witnessing that the currency in Hollywood is you're a current star. And we and here he is. He's loaded with money. Mm-hmm. He's a customer who should be able to just purchase it. And, you know, and instead, they're giving it to him. We will, we're going to have a shoot here. Please, we'll give you this expensive suit. And, he's, right. and the response is, I'll do it if you give me a thousand dollars so he's right, going to come right. in get a thousand dollars and a great suit so <laughs> this is this is he's getting a suit and profiting because yeah. like you know heather graham's character uses her currency he's using his currency and he knows no one will say no to him because the right. idea of showing a famous person was here 
Like he could buy it. And it always drives me crazy when celebrities, rich celebrities, rich famous celebrities are the ones who get the free stuff. Right. Like right. why are you giving the millionaire the free right, stuff right. when he should be paying twice as much? Well, you know, spinning off something you said about this particular scene, it's like two deluded people, deluded in completely different directions, yeah. coming together in one moment there, you know? Yeah. And, and it's just not going to end well, <laughs> which it doesn't. <laughs> well, and, and how does it, and how does it, uh, uh, you know, and, and how does it, um, you know, how does it meet? You know, it's like you, it meets through, first of all, misunderstanding, but also it's tapped into his mind head obsession. Mm. It's tapped into his complete lack of sense of reality that right. a Christine Baranski could run in, that Carol could run in talking about aliens, talking about, you know, everything, the, the, you know, which she thinks she's talking about the movie and he thinks she's talking about his delusions and that his delusions can be so tangible that he doesn't just instantly dismiss her. This just shows that this is, these are two, you're right, these are two pretentious, deluded brains about to crash <laughs> like two trains heading the same direction. Yeah. yeah. Or in opposite directions, I guess. That would be the best. Yeah. And, and, and the Kid Ramsey character is interesting because he they also play, it's, it's almost a little bit ahead of its time in the way he, he makes fun of uh, some of the wokeness that's mm -hmm. going on now. There's a scene back in his office where he's talking about the, uh, uh, oh, the guy, his agent is saying, you know, you do so, do some Shakespeare. And he goes, what'd you say? Shakespeare? You mean shake a yeah. spear? You mean I'm a spear chucker now? I mean, everything becomes like, <laughs> they well, have to like jump on everything. And that's been going on for a while. I mean, this is not a new thing. And some of it has been, has been seeping into popular culture, but that whole, you know, sort of jumping in the you know the the sensitivity pool of which mm. some things i think are worth talking about and some things are like okay we're, we're going a little too, bit too far yeah. you know but um yeah i mean yeah this is stuff that was coming on at that point and you know i mean you you sort of see that it was even in that scene when he was not making any sense and he was asking him to take the number of K's and divide it by three to see how many times <laughs> they see KKK. Um, yeah. Again, you wonder how much of that is based upon, you know, some of the real delusion. And and it's interesting that it's written by Steve Martin, who was a movie star to reach that level. And I mm -hmm. wonder if some of this was kind of a reflection of some of the things that he saw um, over his time, especially during that period of time when he had the album Wild and Crazy Guy, he was doing the live shows, he was doing the jerk, he was like he was he was on SNL all the time. You know, his specials were wildly popular. Mm -hmm. And you gotta think that this was almost it's sort of it's interesting that he didn't cast he didn't have himself play the star, but he played he played the person who had to kind of like scaling back and almost starting again. Um, yeah. but still, well, but still, but still wanting to get into the world. It's interesting that that's yeah. the role he chose and not the, he could have easily, if you were going to have a, a dual role part, he could have played Bowfinger and Kid Ramsey. 
Yeah, but you know, he, I think that role, I think the bow, the bow finger part for him, I'm, I'm sure, was much more appealing to him. Somebody who would just do anything to get this movie made and be desperate, and he he just nailed it. He nailed it, like scene yeah. after scene. You know, um, I agree, I agree, and of course, we see in this scene um, the 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 arrogance of Carol and the paranoia of Kit Ramsey exploding in this in this massive uh, nitroglycerin of, of misunderstanding, and uh, and that's that's where this minute particularly ends. But I want to ask you a couple of questions, Jeff. Sure. Um, you saw that? I'm assuming you saw this in the theater, or did you see? Or were you one of the ones who saw it on tape? Um, I originally, I think I originally saw this in a movie theater. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. 1999, I would have. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what, what was your, what was your memories of seeing it in the theater? Well, it's good. Any comedy, any funny comedy you see in a theater with a lot of people is better than watching it at home. Yeah. Cause you're, you're getting, you know, laughter all around you. Um, great. I mean, it's just, as, it's just, it's just enjoyable now as it was then. Um, and I don't get tired of seeing it. There's a lot of movies, believe me, I get tired of, <laughs> but not not this one. I just showed it to some friends down the street who had never seen it about a yeah, two weeks what ago. What do they think? They're they're a lot older than me, and they they were laughing. They they thought it was funny. I mean, really, you know, they they got the the satirical Hollywood element uh, I, to it. I mentioned this in a previous episode, but I'm going to bring it up again to you. I think this is a time capsule film in some ways in that it is a film about filmmaking in the 90s this film wouldn't work this it, this film wouldn't work if it took place in the 2010s or 2020s well no because, they're not making this yeah but but yeah. also because this what i'm holding this this iphone would be the equipment they would need the the mm -hmm. the, the the technology of superimposing someone's face on another is easy to come by you know the idea of stealing equipment in order to get it done <laughs> Yeah, you have a selfie stick, you know, yeah, and a, and a yeah. light ring. So I mean, it would, right. and you see people who are, and and a lot of it is great. You see people who are my son's age who are producing mm -hmm. videos and content that would run laps around what was being made in the nineteen nineties in terms of oh, yeah. production value yeah. and everything. So I think I think Bowfinger was born in the wrong time. He would be a huge YouTube content creator, That's and true. And wouldn't what, have yeah. to be begging. You wouldn't have to, and you know, wouldn't have to be doing all of this effort to try to get a shot here or sneak a shot there. Um, but again, I'm glad this film exists because it it does reflect. I think it's great when you have a film that specifically reflects a period of time that we can sort of see in that sort of time capsule era. Yeah, it's definitely a, a film of its time. There's just no doubt about it. Um, now, Ed Wood, when did Ed Wood come out? Ed Wood came out just about four or five years before. That was in 94, another great year for movies. Okay. So that was that came out the same year as like Shawshank and you know, and Martin yeah. Landau famously beat Samuel L. Jackson in the best supporting actor, Samuel L. Jackson for Pulp Fiction. Right. Um you had Shawshank, Pulp Fiction, um, Quiz Show, which I think is a, a phenomenal movie. Great movie. Um yeah. Bullets Over Broadway. I'm not the biggest Forrest Gump fan in the world, but a lot of people love Forrest Gump. There was Hoop Dreams came out that year. God, there were so many good movies that year. Um, what was another big one? There was another really big one that was Four Weddings and a Funeral was a good movie. 
There was ah, uh, uh, there was one other one that I really liked that that I can't remember off the top of my head. Anyway, it was a uh, it was a pretty uh, it's a pretty stacked year for movies in 1994. Uh, Speed was another one that was a big hit. Oh, and, yeah. And The Lion yeah. King and oh yeah. man, there's well, a, a bunch of, of huge movies. True Lies came out that year. Um, but yeah, that's uh, uh, Ed Wood came out that year, and hmm. again was not a big hit. And I think it's actually one of the, I think it's it's arguably Tim Burton's most interesting movie. It's interesting. And it's also, I think one of Johnny Depp's more interesting roles, mm -hmm. really not like what he usually did. Has no, been, and um, he kind of played almost the straight man yeah. to, um, uh, Martin Landau, but also, you know, great performances. They had Patricia Arquette, obviously yeah. Martin Landau, Bill Murray, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker before she exploded right. the superstardom. Um, yeah. The great Mike Starr, one of the great that guys in the history of movies, uh, played the studio exec or the the low budget uh, person who financed. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Glenn or Glenda, and then uh, G D Spradlin, who was Senator Geary in Godfather oh, yeah. Two, yeah. and also um, what did he play was, in that in Edward? He, he was the the Pentecostal preacher. Who financed oh, yeah. uh, Plan That's Nine from right. Outer Space? <laughs> That's right. And he was also <laughs> the the general in um, uh, Apocalypse Now, right? Who sends Martin Sheena off on his mission? Yeah, by the way, Harrison Ford is there. Yeah, right. And by the way, there's um, Harrison Ford's character is Colonel Lucas. Yeah, George Lucas was yeah. the original director of Apocalypse Now. Was going to direct right. it, and uh, J.D. Spradlin was General Corman after Roger oh. Corman. Oh. Yeah, you get that. Had, did he have a catacorman name tag? Now I have to watch. That. Uh, I think so. Yeah, I, you yeah. can see the Lucas name tag on um, <clears throat> on uh, there. So there you go. But yeah, that was another. I mean, that's another great movie about sort of the edges of filmmaking. Yeah. Um, and I think now the edges are a lot blurrier. Yeah, they are. And they were get, they were getting blurry in the nineties because there were so many indie films, whether it was Clerks or El Mariachi or so. There's these films, low budget films that were becoming. Yeah. box office hits but still it was nothing like today where there's well i don't, I don't know about you yourself but i'm you know i'm still working on writing you know script projects and stuff and i'm always thinking like well gee all hollywood is doing is mostly making is marvel comic stuff now you know i call well, I it marvel wood well know? i think there's a lot of stuff you're seeing in the streaming world that used to be the indie film world right you know and right well, the sad thing is, is that, I mean, it, it means there's a lot. I think there are a lot of shows and a lot of things. I think people are more interested in making a pilot for a limited series rather than making a 90 to 120 minute movie. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that because there's no real interest in making an hour long movie or a two hour long movie, mm -hmm. unless it does have Spider-Man or, or, you know, Captain Marvel or, right. or C-3PO in it. And yeah. so I think that those people who used to want to be, and I mentioned this with Victor Varnado, the people who wanted to be Spike Lee or Martin Scorsese or the Coen brothers now want to be Vince Gilligan or someone creating a great TV show instead. And seeing that, you know, even the Oscars are films that are available on streaming, you know, it's like, Oh yeah. The, yeah. I mean, and they're, they're wonderful movies that come out that way, but it's just the actual theatrical film, going experience is just for big tentpole pole movies now and, and now since uh covet epidemic a uh, pandemic how how many times you've been to the movie theater since? So seldom yeah. seldom 
Like I mean, uh, maybe uh, two or three times a year, but yeah. I watch a ton of stuff. Oh yeah, you know, sure. I mean, I watch and and do you what? Know, some of the times I go to the movies, it's I take my kids a lot. My sons' kids—they're eighteen years old now—to um, revival houses. So if I'll show them Invasion of the Body Snatchers by Philip Kaufman projected mm -hmm. on a big screen, or I took my friend uh, uh, Pete Mummer from the Indiana Jones mo uh, minute to see the Jean Renoir film, The Rules of the Game, mm -hmm. projected on a big screen, you mm -hmm. know? Um, but like, I saw all the Best Picture nominees from this year's Oscars. I don't think I saw any of them in the theater. Yeah, yeah. Not even Top Gun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I saw... know I watched, I know I watched All Quiet on the Western Front on my couch, you know, like this, you know, <laughs> poor, poor dude getting crushed by the tank. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God. You know, I can't yeah, imagine sitting in a movie theater watching that one. I need to every once in a while pause. And, and, and our screens are so big now. It's like, okay, oh, why I know, am I, I going to go, you know, you, you know, have to deal with the commercials and the previews yeah. which, and all that crap. The food uh, is better at home. And I can, if I need better. to pee, I can pause yeah, yeah. it. I can't, you know, I can't yeah, pause yeah, yeah. the Avengers. We went to see the uh, 50 year uh, re release of The Godfather, the new print uh, last year, and saw that yeah. in Century City on a huge screen. That was fabulous. That was like my favorite movie going event in the last. It's only, it's only like one of about three in the last few years. You know? Yeah. Um, I think. Uh, oh, I did. Oh, actually, no, I did see one of the Best Picture nominees in the theater. I did. I saw Avatar. I okay. saw Avatar in the theater because I figured, I, I'm, if that film is going to do anything for me, it'll be the, the visual experience of it, not, not the plot. And, um, I mean, look at I'm if if you like Avatar, great. If you, that's why I said, if you liked Avatar, you're going to love this one because this is the most Avatar I've ever seen in a movie. Um, and I'm not going to trash it because there are films that I like that are kind of, yeah. you know, that are ex escapist and everything like that. If that's your thing, that's your thing. Um, I saw it in the theater. I have no evidence the film ended. Uh, I think it may still be going on. Um, it was a long movie. Long, long movie. But uh, again, but again, I if that's your thing, that's your thing. Obviously, it was a thing for a lot of people. It was a huge you know, yeah. both of them were both massive hits. And if, again, I'll never, you know, my taste is not the, the final judge and ex executioner. But, yeah, yeah, it is the the world of theatrical films may just be that now. Mm -hmm. It may just be for the big, huge, splashy events. Right. You know, I think Broadway became that. I mean, yeah. it, that became yeah. a place for big, huge, I mean, the, the idea of a low-key play becoming a massive hit on broadway is not as likely as this big massive musical number or a big revival so right. you know maybe that's just what movies are going to be like broadway that you go there to see you know spider-man or star wars or whatever i just want some more original ones so 20 years from now they can be nostalgic for that instead of it always in it always being recycled from the previous nostalgia yeah, well, look at the Best Picture winner, not this year, but last year, was it, uh, the, the deaf girl with Coda. the deaf parents. Coda. Coda. Great, movie. great yeah. movie. But how many yeah. people saw that in a theater? Probably like I, didn't. I think it was. I didn't. I didn't. I, mean, I saw it in my, in my living room. There on my, on my device, you know. Okay, I'll watch it. And, yeah. and, and why, you know, why would I go, you know, 
get an Uber, go there, you know, wait in line, all the stuff when I can sit on my couch and watch it and mm-hmm. on a really nice theater and nice TV. And, and uh, it was a beautiful movie. I cried at the end. I think if you're not mm-hmm. crying when she's doing the audition at the end, the, mm-hmm. then, then we got to do the, the Blade Runner test to see if you're in, uh, a replicant or not. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's, there are still good movies being made. They're just not being sent to the theater. Right. I, this, right. I mean, if you look at the, the nominees for the best picture uh, in this last year, the year that, I mean, I liked everything, everywhere, all at once. I know not everyone did. No but, comment. Uh, I, but I, what's that? <laughs> no comment <laughs> on that one. No, no, I, I, I get it. I, I get it. And I, I, not everyone, you know, not everyone dug the film. I'm not going to be like, how could you not? No, I get it. I get it. But if I looked at the best picture nominees from this last year, um, there was, I don't think there was one film that I would call a a, a classic, but at the same no. time, I mean, okay, I was not a big fan of Avatar, but you know, I thought Tar was a really good movie. I thought The Banshees of Inchman was a really good movie. I like, I loved the film Triangle of Sadness. I thought that was bananas. Uh, I liked uh, The Fablemans. Uh, Elvis was what it was. If you like Baz Luhrmann, then you'll love it. Um, and I thought All Quiet on the Western Front. I mean, there's about four or five movies that came out. That were nom- and women yeah. talking was also a good movie. I yeah. thought there was a bunch of films that came out last year. I go like, hey, do you know what? Those were all, those all hit. Those all landed. Well, look at. Do you know who also hit and who also landed? Jeff Pullman. Uh, Jeff, tell people where they can follow you, find you, and uh, you know, uh, get to know you. Yeah, well, I'm on Twitter at uh, Red Jeff Eight. That's R E D D. J-E-F-F. I was looking for red, and that was somebody had already taken that one. So it's R-E-D-D Jeff 8. That's my Twitter handle. And uh, all my books are on uh, available on Amazon. If you have an Amazon author page, if you want to go there, if you like quirky baseball historical fiction or scary L.A. stuff, uh, that's where you can find me. And uh, it's been great. It's been great to, to chat. All right. Well, hey, Got look at, here. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate it. And you know what? If you want to follow this podcast, it's available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or at the main site, bowfingerminute.com. And if you have time, please subscribe, review the show on Apple Podcasts. For me, I'm at Sully Baseball on Twitter. On Instagram, I'm at Sully Baseball Podcast. And you can follow my podcast, which is Locked On MLB. Or if you want to go back in the archives, listen to the old Sully Baseball show. They still exist there. Uh, if you're on social media uh, and on Facebook, go like us at Welcome to Mindhead, the Bowfinger Listener Center. Uh, Twitter, we're at Bowfinger Minute. There are hundreds of others Movie by Minute podcasts available at moviebyminutes.com. I had hosted the Bull Durham Minute before. Uh, some lots of great films. Chances are your favorite film is somewhere on there. Check them out. A lot of great shows on there. And oh, I want to mention that the music intro and outro was done by mr math and he is available on spotify and this is the end of my time uh doing this the hosts of the karate kid minute are going to be doing starting minute 51 so on behalf of jeff pullman and thank you to jim O'Kane who produces this podcast and thank you very much my name is paul francis sullivan please call me sully and make sure to join us here next time on the bowfinger minute in the meantime, keep it together. 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 Keep it together.
Keep it together. Keep it together. Keep it together, children. I hope that we'll see you again. Cause there's always one more Sure.